you have your Bibles and want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17, if you can find Matthew chapter 17, it seems like an easy thing to do, but last night I had a dream, and um, I rarely remember my dreams, but I remember this one, and I was sitting back there around where Brian is, and I knew I was preaching on Matthew 17. And um, my time was coming up, and I was trying to get my way to the Bible, and I couldn't find Matthew 17. And we had just finished a praise chorus, which was flashed up here on the overhead. I'm, I'm not making this up. Where do, where do dreams come from? Um, and then after we get finished the praise chorus, Jonathan Tucker makes some announcements and I am getting desperate because I found Matthew, and I cannot find 17. I cannot, every time I turn to 17, it was something else. So I've got Matthew 17 here. I'm pinching myself. I think it's real. So let's begin before I lose it. I'm going to start in verse 26 of, uh, 27 of verse, uh, chapter 16, and then work my way down through verse 9. Uh, hear the word now of the Lord. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with the angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Assuredly, I say to you, there is some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Our gracious Father, as we consider this mysterious and unusual event in the life of our Savior and His earthly ministry, gathering along with Him three of His disciples, and then gathering with them up on this mount, we ask now that the Spirit of God would open up our eyes that we can see His glory, and open up our ears that we can hear Him, and open up our hearts, that we will love Him. So we ask that you would do the work of the Spirit now in bringing this event into our remembrance and into our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is one of a very unusual event that happens. It just kind of happens out of the blue, it goes away, and and yet, it's the Mount of Transfiguration of what we have come to know it as. And the point of this unusual and mysterious event, I believe, 
is to put God's revelation all together and see it in the light of Jesus' glory. And I think that's the point. I think we will help us to see that if we think about the context. This part of Jesus' ministry, remember, he's focusing now less on the public ministry to all of the crowds. And Matthew has been very mindful to remind us of the crowds, the multitudes. But now he focuses and turns his attention more deliberately to his disciples and more of a private kind of discipleship from here on. There was a lot he had to tell them particularly from this point on. And as he said on one occasion, I have much to tell you, but you cannot all bear it now. So much of what Jesus had to teach them was to break old paradigms, old ways of thinking, shattering old worldviews, and change the way that they, along with the Jews, have been thinking about Messiah for centuries. This teaching in itself was not necessarily difficult, but it was hard to believe. But because of the mindset and their strongly held presuppositions, the truth was going to be very difficult to accept. Now, I think we can all appreciate the challenge that comes into our own lives when we have grown up in a particular atmosphere, in a particular way of thinking about things, a particular cultural mindset, even in the church. We've begun to think in particular ideas, and we have informed these deeply seated beliefs that we call presuppositions that are there even without us knowing them. And we have a traditional way in which we assume things, and we believe. And yet here is Jesus coming to His disciples with that kind of makeup in the first century, and He is going to be holding up truth that is so seemingly contrasting with everything that they have believed thus far, and yet He's going to hold it up all at one time. He's going to inform them that the long-awaited kingdom of God that Daniel had prophesied that would be an everlasting kingdom that would have a triumph over all the nations is now upon them. The kingdom of God is here. And that kingdom would be inaugurated at the coming of Messiah. And this Messiah would be God Himself, and this Messiah, God Himself, would come into His temple. And Jesus is Messiah. Now right there, you can already see things are getting complicated. We've had the advantage of growing up with a clear and largely undisputed Trinitarian worldview. And even in our culture at this time of the year, the world sings about Jesus being king from his birth and that God was born in a manger. And, and even the world around us sings of this. And yet, here's the Jews in the first century and these disciples of his that did not have that advantage. But Peter had just confessed days ago 
that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as we have to carry these buckets around, these buckets of truth, there's another bucket of information that they would have to hang on to, and a new piece of information that Jesus revealed to him, that he, the Messiah, would have to die and be raised again on the third day. You can already see it. This was the previous, this was six days ago from this occasion right now that Jesus told him that. This is the time when Peter confronted him. Not so, Lord, not so. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking as God, but you're thinking as man. A crucified Messiah. You know, I, I'm, they were so fixed on that particular phrase that I, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, must die and be raised again the third day. I think they heard only the first part and could not hear the second. Not so, Lord. What? To be raised again? No, no, no. <laughs> to, to die. A crucified Messiah. That doesn't float with our worldview. That's not how we thought about it. That's not how we've been catechized. That's not how we understand the Scriptures. Not so. That's not going to happen. That would not be true of our Messiah. So Jesus begins to explain to them how everything that's wrong here on this world is going to be made right. Where mercy and truth and peace and righteousness all kind of come together. And that the way to this glory is through the cross. The way of life is through death. The suffering that was going to be the pathway to restoration for all that brokenness down here. And the disciples would have to learn that lesson. And that's what Jesus said. He says, no, the Messiah must die and be raised again. And then He then couples that to their own discipleship, their own following of Jesus, and yes, and you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and go through a death in order to follow me. And when you follow me, it will be a new life. So you're going to have to do that. And he's training them on what this entire nature of the kingdom of God would look like. And then he segues and says, now, some of you here who are standing in, my, in the midst, you're not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His glorious kingdom. Jesus was coming to make everything new. To take everything that is wrong here, and He's going to make it right. He is bringing in the new heavens and the new earth. And when that final day comes, when Jesus comes back in, in His bodily form to come to this earth, it will be the final consummation where everything wrong will be made right. Jesus deals with sin, not just Roman imperial government. Jesus comes to defeat the devil, not just show that He is Lord over Caesar. He comes to restore paradise that had fallen. He came to bring heaven and earth together at last. At last. 
So right after Jesus informed his disciples about his own death and resurrection, he informed his disciples that they too are going to have to follow in this pattern of life here in this fallen world. There's going to be a battle going on between your flesh and your spirit. The way of thinking about the ways of man versus the way of thinking of God. The old humanity versus the new humanity. The old has to go out and the new has to come in. And it does so through suffering, through death, and through resurrection. And so they have to learn this. Now you can just imagine for a moment there, you're standing here in just a few days of time, and Jesus is revealing all of this to you, and you're just, try, your head's spinning, you're trying to take it all in. So you can imagine at this point how much thought is swimming and how much they're trying to get a hold of, not understanding or digesting this. And ironically, they had all the information at their disposal for centuries. They knew the Scriptures. We find out from subsequent New Testament passages, they knew, Peter knew the Scriptures well. He had not ever put anything unclean in his mouth. He had lived a very righteous Jewish life. But the entire lesson of the exodus out of Egypt, the death of the firstborn, the Red Sea baptism, the promised land, the priesthood, the Davidic kingdom, the prophets, it's all there. And now it was time to take all of that history and put it together in the life and the work of one man and, and really in just an instant of time up on this mysterious, on this mountain in this mysterious event. And so we come now to this unusual event in the narrative that has been referred to as the transfiguration of Christ. Matthew highlights seven major events in the life of Christ. And one of them is this event happening in just nine short verses without a lot of commentary, without a lot of explanation. And it's also the least one that's understood, or the one that's least understood. But to understand what this event is all about, I think we have to grab some buckets along the way. I hope I've used the illustration enough to know what I'm talking about, or you know what I'm talking about. You have to hold things up all at one time, or you end up falling into some errors. You have to hold up God's transcendence as well as His eminence all at one time. And so we have to grab some buckets. The disciples were being asked to grab a bunch and keep it all up in the air all at the same time. As we go back and we think about this, we see Peter's confession just days ago. Who do you say I am, Peter? Well, Lord, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, the coming Davidic king, the, the coming the prophet, as Moses spoke, the priest, the great high. You are this Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Identifying Him with God Himself. And then Jesus says yes, and He is going to have to die and 
be raised again. And some of them will now see Him coming in His kingdom before they part this life. Now all these points of revelation have just been affirmed and revealed right in the immediate context. And now everything comes together in this mountaintop experience. Jesus took Peter, James, and John on a high mountain. The passage leads off. There have been a few occasions, three occasions specifically, where Jesus takes these three, Peter, James, and John, with Him to have a closer view of Him. One occasion was on the time when Jairus' daughter died, and He went to raise her from the dead. Another occasion was when He took them a little further into the garden on the night that He was betrayed and the next day would be crucified to pray with Him. And then this is the other occasion where He takes them up on this high mountain nearby Caesarea Philippi and He then reveals Himself in His glory. Which mountain is this? It's been some debate, and there's been two suggestions, Mount Tabor, and I think if you go over to the Holy Land today, that's the, the mountain that they will traditionally take you up to, and that's the one that uh, they suggest. But we don't know if that's a fact. The other mountain was Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the region in which they were then ministering in Caesarea Philippi, and Matthew does draw attention, it was up on a high mountain that they went. We simply don't know, and that's probably not very relevant to the point here, but Luke's gospel tells us that they went up to pray. Now Luke fills in a few of the gaps that Matthew does not. And as they prayed, two things happened. Number one, the disciples all fell asleep. Can you relate? It's not the first time they slept. These three when they were supposed to be praying. And I can relate to that. I know that's, if Jesus brought me along and asked me to pray with him one hour, I'm afraid that he would be shaking me up uh, as well. But the second thing that happened is while they were sleeping, Jesus was transfigured. Luke informs us that his face changed. It was transfigured. His face did. It says, then he began to shine with bright light and glistening clothing so that everything just shone from him, even through his clothes, so that his clothes were the white, white and brilliance. And then Luke's gospel tells us that these three woke up. So this was not a dream vision like I had last night when I couldn't find Matthew 17. No, they were wide awake and they saw Jesus in this glorious appearance and there with Him were Moses and Elijah. This was not a dream vision. This is a vision that Christ revealed of Himself in glory. And there He is seen in glory with Elijah and Moses. Just a couple of weeks ago, I think one of you asked me, hey, do you, do you think that we're going to recognize each other in heaven? I said, not only will we recognize each other in heaven, we're going to recognize all those saints. It, it appears here that Peter, James, and John knew who Moses and Elijah were. They called them by name. Hey, um, was there any indication in their conversation that gave that away? We don't know, but they clearly knew who they were. 
And so, it is with a great a confirmation that I think that there's cognitive understanding and knowledge and, and personal relationships and, and conversations that go on in glory as here we have a picture. But their presence there upon the mountain is important to understand the meaning of this occasion. Moses and Elijah. Both of these represented previous revelation that God had given to His people. Moses was the one who gave us the law. And he stands as a representative over all of that Torah. Moses himself, Psalm 99, says he is a priest, but then throughout the Scriptures he also is called a prophet, and and the people, he even told them, there will be a prophet that will come like me. But he was speaking about this prophet, Jesus. And then Elijah was a representative figure of all of the prophets, and so we have the law and the prophets, which really is a, a, a way to articulate the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. It was on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection that He walked along with the two disciples there, and it says He began with Moses and the prophets and began to teach them all the things that the Scriptures taught concerning Him. Moses and the prophets. Moses and Elijah are here now, up on this mountaintop. It's not the first time that they've been on mountaintops. In fact, when we hear of Moses and we think of Moses, he had many occasions up on a mountaintop. But one specific occasion is when he got the law of God. He had to do that again because he broke them. Uh, Literally broke the (laughs) tablets. But here he met with God up on the high mountain where only he was privy to go. And he comes up there and he hears God speaking and he sees God writing and he brings the revelation of Jesus back down to the people. Elijah also was on a mountain, and the mountain that we have, the two, Mount Sinai listed at Moses, and Mount Horeb that we have in 1 Kings, revealing where Elijah was when he went up into the mountain. Commentators think that's the same mountain. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. The mountaintop experience that Elijah had was the time that he went up onto the mountain and he was in the cave there. And that's when, that we just sang about, that God revealed Himself to Elijah in that still, small voice. The quietness. Not the bolstering earthquake or the thundering lightning and storm and the wind, but in the still, small voice. So both of these men had experience with God where they God spoke to them and they heard God and they then would take revelation and tell the people, give it to the people. And all of that was coming together here as they are with Jesus. And that's the point. All of the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Jesus. Spoke of the Messiah who is now here, the Son of the living God. And this one experience which was intended for Peter, James, and John pulls it all together 
in a moment, in a time where they see it all in a glimpse. We see a visual glory. And there was a visual glory that was essential to this revelation. They're now seeing the Son of Man in glory. They had just heard Messiah was going to die. And Peter was confounded and did not understand. And he said, not so. But he had to show him the glory. The glory. Peter, I'm going to die. But I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And here's glory. They're getting a glimpse of Him in His kingdom now. I believe that this, this, is, the, this is what Jesus was talking about. And there's different interpretations of, of that previous text that says that not, some of you here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I believe this is really the foretaste and what was being referenced here is they see Jesus now in His kingdom glorified and have the taste of this that will be consummated, but that they will also be in. So you have a glimpse. And this vision of this glory is going to carry these disciples throughout the rest of their earthly pilgrimage. James, with these intimate times with Jesus, would be the first of the twelve to die the martyr's death. Didn't have much of a ministry that we know of. We don't know much. Why did Jesus take all of this time bringing him into the inner circle, revealing all of this to him, only to have him die what we would call prematurely? God knows and has a plan. Peter, who was prophesied to die in a like death, and his tradition holds it that he died not only a crucifixion, but upside down. And here was John, probably the longest of the living apostles, exiled they would have to see this vision that would continue to carry them on. These two figures, Moses and Elijah, were both alive and well, conversing with Jesus. And they have to understand that they too are going to live forever conversing with Jesus. The earthly death that they're going to die is... Of, of little import, of little consequence, because now with Jesus, they will be conversing with Jesus forever. And that same thing has got to go on with you. You're going to have to see the glory of Jesus and have the vision of glory to transcend all of the earthly trials so that you too can live through suffering and live through death. A death to yourself so that the love of God would flourish In fact, you know how we are changed to be more like this perfect human, this Messiah, this Jesus? 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this visual of glory, but it says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Through the Gospel and through the Scriptures, we are to see the glory of Jesus 
We are to see the end right now and we are to see what God is doing. When you have to face death and perhaps even a martyr's death, you have to see life beyond the grave. You have to see living beyond your current circumstances. You have to see the glory. But not only do you have to see the glory, you have to hear the conversation. There was a conversation that was going on in their midst, and it was for their hearing. And they heard two things. First of all, they heard a conversation taking place between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Matthew doesn't give us the conversation, but Luke does. And it says in Luke chapter 9, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Very interesting choice of words. So they're talking with Jesus. Remember, this is the very thing that Peter confronted Jesus on. The very thing that he stood against the Messiah when, he, when Jesus told him that he must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Wasn't going to have that. And Jesus has to say, but get behind me, Satan. But here is Moses and Elijah and Jesus in glory, all radiant. And they're talking now to Jesus about what things will happen when he goes to Jerusalem. And the word here is, they spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And while they beheld Jesus' radiant, transfigured self, and his face was shining and his clothing all brilliant, they were talking about his decease. Interesting word that Matthew uses here. It's a Greek word. I'm going to pronounce the Greek word literally and see if you can understand what it may refer back to. The literal word for this word decease, which is very rare in the New Testament, I think it's only mentioned three times in the New Testament, is the word exodus. <laughs> Got the picture? And he spoke about his exodus, which was about to happen in Jerusalem. You know, one of the other two places I noticed as we were reading it, it happened to be in the New Testament reading, I underlined it here, in 2 Peter, where we are reading, where Peter is relating back to this story, Peter is talking about his decease. It's the same word, exodus, in the second of the three times it's only used in the New Testament. Exodus. Well, that's supposed to bring up all kinds of things when you're talking to Moses and Elijah about Jesus' exodus. The exodus was a big event that pictured exactly what Jesus the Messiah was about to ultimately do. Moses was the one that was talking to Jesus, and Moses was the one that led all the people out of Egypt with this tremendous exodus. At the close of Deuteronomy, he spoke of another exodus that would happen because God's people would rebel and they wouldn't listen to him and he's going to scatter them out of the promised land and have them go into exile and there would need to be another exodus.
And so that's when the prophets would come in and the prophets would begin speaking and warning the people against this rebellion and yet speaking about the Exodus. And so then Jeremiah speaks about the Exodus and, and here is the Babylonian exile. But in 70 years, you're going to have an Exodus. God will bring you back. The problem is the people continued to have the same problems over and over. So the regular kind of exodus is not really just what is needed. The the kind of earthly kingdom is not exactly going to suffice. What we need is an exodus to be the end of all exoduses, and that would truly be the exodus out of what we're in bondage to, sin, death, and the dominion of darkness. That's why with those prophets... He spoke of a new heavens and a new earth. He spoke of a new heart where God's law would be written upon the heart. Where God's people would not have need for another exodus after the final one. And so here they are back in the promised land. They had rebuilt the temple, but they still had no king. And they really needed a true delivery once again. And here comes Jesus on the scene the Son of the living God, speaking with Moses and Elijah, and it's all about to happen. This exodus. This exodus of of the Lord, which does imply and certainly speak of His death upon the cross, but it was the death upon His cross. His exodus, which was going to cause about our exodus. Remember, Jesus was the firstborn that had to die to release the people. He was the Paschal Lamb whose blood was sprinkled upon the door and the lintel. He was the ark through which people were saved. He was the Exodus. And as Moses and Elijah were speaking about this impending death that's about to happen in Jerusalem and his departure. It was also the sign of something new. He was going to be raised up in three days. The old would be done away. The new would come in. The kingdom would have power. It would come in with with great glory. And Peter, bless his heart, in his Petrine fashion, begins to speak. You know, that's just Peter. You ever been in awkward situations where you're just not sure what to say, and it's kind of quiet, and it's all you And someone is going to feel like they've got to speak. Well, Lord, let, let, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for each of you. Again, Luke gives us the commentary And it says, not knowing what he was saying. (laughs) So Peter, that's so some of you. (laughs) That's so some of me. (laughs) Oh boy, you're getting those situations. You're like, oh man, what am I saying? Or you get awkward, you just got to say something. It's a little awkward and you break the sign. Oh man, that wasn't the right thing to say. And all of a sudden, he could hardly get this out when the second thing was heard. They were conversing, and he heard the conversation going on, and maybe a little lull in the conversation, where Peter interjects 
And then it says, while he was speaking, it just didn't even get the thought out of his, off of his tongue. It says, behold, in verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A bright cloud. We've seen that before. We've seen that leading the people out of Egypt. We've seen that now coming down upon the tabernacle at its completion. We've seen that glory before. We've seen this cloud. And we've heard this voice. And a voice comes out of the cloud. And the voice says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Hear Him. We've heard that before. That is baptism. The dove lights upon Him. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And we hear this voice out of heaven say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here we have it again. And what they were commanded to do is hear Him. This was God Himself speaking from the glory cloud of which enveloped them. And they were all, and it's no wonder they fell on their faces. There's sometimes it's just good to be quiet. And the implications were profound. Peter, who had confessed that Jesus was the Son of the living God, is now hearing, This is my Son. He's hearing the voice of God. He's been hearing it all along in the one. But now, this is just rattling his world. And what does the, the living God tell Peter? Hear him. Hear him. You've seen him. Now hear Him. Listen to Jesus. Believe what He tells you. Don't question Him. Peter, don't stand in His way. Don't confront Him like you did six days ago. Don't think in the mind the way the man thinks, but hear Him, Peter. Hear Him, James. Hear Him, John. Listen to Jesus. And what a practical application that is today. Listen. Just listen to Jesus. And then follow what He says. Seems simple, doesn't it? It's not going to be long before Jesus tells Peter, you know, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. Not so, Lord, not so. Peter, hear Him. Be watchful and prayerful, Peter. Satan desires to sift you as wheat, Peter. Come and watch with me. Peter, can you not watch with me one hour? Peter, can you not watch with me another hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Hear me, Peter. Hear me. And that, that just is, if, if the whole message just needs to be boiled down to that, we need to see Jesus, we need to hear Jesus, and we need to love Jesus. See, 
Him through the eyes of faith with all of His glory. Hear what He has to say through all of the Scriptures that reveal Him and love Him with our heart. Seems simple. But it is impossible apart from the Spirit to do. Well, that one unusual episode shrouded in mystery would not be understood until later. But how much was packed into that event? It was a microcosm of the sum total of all of the revelation in one event. We have all of the Old Testament that reveals Jesus, the Messiah. We see Him already in glory in the consummation. And we see Him with Moses and Elijah and now with the representative of the apostles and we see Him on this mountain radiant in glory taking heaven and bringing earth together as it will be. And here is this heaven and earth figure, the only one who is qualified to be the mediator between God and man, Jesus, who sums up everything in Himself, the things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth, to reconcile all things together by the blood of His cross and bringing together heaven and earth. And the event was over in an instant and they were coming back down the mountain, kind of dazed. What just happened? And Jesus said, don't, don't say anything about these things until after my resurrection. That event would change their lives forever. Peter related back to it in the epistle that we read a moment ago. And as we consider this great event in the juxtaposition of where we find it, connected to His death, seeing His glory, we have to connect all of these things together that we have to see the proper nature of the kingdom and what it means to follow Jesus. It means to die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him. It means living out all of the beatitudes and all of the life of this new humanity that God in Christ has created us to be. It's living not for yourself, but for God, and by so doing, you live into the lives of others. You invest it, you divest it, and you just promote what God's glory is through love. A commentator on this passage says this, I think this is telling the scene of the transfiguration offers a strange parallel and a contrast to the crucifixion. If you're going to meditate on the one, you might like to hold the other in your mind as well as sort of a backdrop. Here on the mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here His clothes are shining white. There they have been stripped off and the soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes representing the law and the prophets, but there he is flanked by two thieves representing the level to which Israel had shrunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is, and there he's hiding in shame after denying that he even knows Jesus. Here a voice from God Himself declares that this 
is his wonderful son. But there it was a pagan Roman soldier in surprise says this really was God's son. The mountaintop explains the hilltop and vice versa. Perhaps we can only really understand either of them if we see them side by side with one another. Learn to see the glory in the cross and learn to see the cross in the glory. And you will have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of God who hides in the cloud. The God who is known in the strange person of Jesus Himself. The story is, of course, about being surprised by the power and the love and the beauty of God. But the point of it is that we should learn to recognize the same power and love and beauty within Jesus and to listen for it in His voice. Not least when He tells us to take up our cross and follow Him. The word to the disciples then is just as much a word to us today. If you want to find the way, the way to God, the way to the promised land, you must listen to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, open our ears that we may hear. And open our eyes that we may see. And open our hearts that it may love You with all the greater capacity in the light and the face of Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son of the living God, the Anointed One, the One who has fulfilled all of these prophecies, and the One in whom all things are made new. We thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the hope of glory which is Christ in us. We thank You for the visions that You give to us even in this life that we will have to cling to to make it through some of those dark valleys in the shadow of death. So continue to remind us of this glory and this event and make it real to us when we have to tread through those dark valleys because there is glory awaiting us. We pray that the Gospel would be dear to us, and we could see the beauty of Jesus with all the more brilliance today through the eyes of faith. And so as we behold Him, we pray You would change us to be more like Him. For His glory and for His honor, in His name we pray. Amen.